Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. This is episode 44 with John Comiskey on fly fishing the Everglades. Yeah, we can we can just hop right in. Uh, if you want to just start by maybe giving me a little bit of a background about yourself, um, how'd you get started in, in fly fishing? Um, my dad started taking me fishing as soon as I learned how to walk. But my dad was not a fly fisherman. He mostly used bait. But he had a fly rod which was probably one of the first glass fiberglass fly rods ever made. Because prior to that, they were all bamboo or uh, other natural materials. So that thing hung out in our garage forever. And when they said, I'm going to teach myself how to learn how to use that thing, I went to the library and got a book from the Barnes Sporting Library. It was called Fly Casting. And I took the fishing rod in my yard after reading the book and uh, started casting. When my yard got too small, I hopped the fence into the churchyard behind me, which was a much bigger yard. And the neighbors started calling my mother, telling her that um, I wasn't gonna catch any fish there because there wasn't any water. <laughs> so even at the young age of 12 or so, which is around when this happened, I was already eccentric. So you got to tell me what it's like to learn to fly cast from a book, because I was actually just talking to somebody else about this, um, how we have it so, so nice these days, being able to watch videos or um, meet up with groups and, and people used to have to learn it the hard way, uh, either finding a mentor or, or learning it via a book. And I just can't imagine learning to fly cast from a book. What, what was that like? Um, well, you don't learn to cast very well. <laughs> I had a terrible, terrible problem with tailing loops for a long time. I took a class when I got to Florida. Um, I got here in 1984. There's a gentleman by the name of John Cave who has been running a fly fishing school 
since before I got here. And I took a class with him and he got some of my kinks out and I just worked out the rest of them from there. Not that I'm a great caster, but I'm good. I'm competent. You know. Now, did you grow up in Florida? I grew up in Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts. Okay. What took you to Florida? Uh, when I graduated from UMass, I got a job teaching in Brazil when, uh, and I got married. Two things were related. When we left Brazil, we stopped in Florida to visit a friend. And while we were there, she got evicted. Her son got suspended. She broke up with her boyfriend. So we stayed here to help her and been here ever since. The rest is history. Yep. So when you, when you first started uh, fishing, were you, what were you fishing for? I assume, was this in Massachusetts when you, when you first picked it up? We fished for stocked trout because okay. I lived in suburban Boston. I don't know how well you know the East Coast. There's a uh, town outside of Boston called Medford. Tufts University is there. And that's where I went to high school. So uh, as Fish and Wildlife, they had a big stocking program because wild trout would not live in eastern Massachusetts. We fished for those. We fished for largemouth bass. We fished for chain pickerel. And, you know, I was a little kid. I fished for yellow perch and sunfish and crappie and anything else I could get to bite. Because when you're a child, you don't care about the finer points of angling. You know, you just want to get a bite. Right. That really never went away. Now I want to get bites from bigger fish, but I still just want to get a bite. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about, um, you know, even when you can appreciate just being out on the water, there is a difference between just being out to enjoy it and actually getting something to the net, even if it's nothing special. Just get, getting a fish on the line is, is what everyone's going for at the end of the day. A wise man once told me that fishing is more enjoyable when the fish participate. <laughs> that, that, that's definitely true. That's what I think. So you get to Florida and you're already fishing at this point. Um, so did you did you basically just transfer that over and, and say, what is there for me to catch here? Yeah, but you know, fishing here is very, very different than fishing in Massachusetts. Massachusetts was like, you're in Montana, are you not? I'm in Colorado. In Colorado. Massachusetts was glaciated. Cape Cod is a big glacial moraine. So we had deep ponds, you know. And I, my dad only fished in fresh water. I never really fished in salt water. So I get to Florida and all these places, it's a foot deep as far as you can see. And I'm there like, what is this? I was lucky I had a couple guys who took me under their wing and really taught me a lot. And uh, I started writing. And through writing, I started fishing with guides. And fishing with guides, I thought, I can do this. So I got, ended up getting my captain's license. I quit my teaching job and went fishing, which I have never regretted. Yes, I say that sounds kind of like the life. <laughs> After teaching eighth grade physical science, oh my God, what, a, what an improvement <laughs> fishing was. That's funny you mentioned that. I, uh, I, of all the, I, I know a lot of teachers and I feel like of all the grades to teach, I'm sure seventh and eighth grade have got to be up there in some of the most difficult Eighth graders do not care about molecular motion. I can assure you of that. <laughs> well, one one thing I wanted to ask, I was probably going to ask it later, but um, you kind of brought it up there. How how different is Florida from the rest of the U.S. when it comes to fly fishing? And, and we're, I know we're talking specifically about the Everglades here more than like offshore fishing, um, which is, I'm sure it's a, its own beast. When it comes to like the freshwater aspect. I, you know, a lot of people know what the West is like. A lot of people picture the Northeast, maybe the Northern Midwest. But um, how, how does Florida stack up against those other places? Freshwater fishing? Yeah. Well, we don't have any cold water fish, obviously. 
Um, we have largemouth bass. So bass fishing is bass fishing. Where I do most of my bass fishing is a small river near me. It doesn't have any weeds. All the bass structure is a fallen lumber, you know? And because of that, you pretty much have to use floating flies because if you use flies that sink, you hook wood all day, which gets to be aggravating and lose a lot of flies. So, so I only go fish there when the water's low and uh, I, I know the fish will come up. Now, is Florida pretty pretty good for bass fishing? I feel like that's a state that comes to mind when I think of pretty solid bass fishing. There are certainly bass here. They're heavily fished. And, um, you know, fish learn hook avoidance. So the heavier fish a place is, the more educated the fish that aren't removed from the water become. And they get very hard to catch. I think that the bass here could tell you the patent numbers on all the plastic baits <laughs> that are made. So if you want to find good fishing, you have to be willing to spend some sweat equity and find places that uh, are not accessible to bass boats that are difficult to get into. Then fishing should be great. That's interesting that you mentioned that because obviously I'm sure that any species that gets heavily fished for in a given area does wise up a bit to the angling pressure. But um, I don't think about bass as much when I think of that. I, you know, trout come to mind to some of these heavily fished tailwaters around where I live. Um, you know, it's it's known that the fish see the same patterns every day, and um, you might want to try to avoid whichever pattern the the fly shop is telling everybody to use because most likely, even if it's an effective pattern, the the trout have seen it a million times. But bass don't usually come to mind when I think of that, and I guess maybe it's just because bass fishing isn't as big as trout fishing out here. Um, mm -hmm. But that, that definitely makes sense that, you know, a bass could learn the same thing. I think people just put trout up on a pedestal when it comes to, you know, how, how smart they can get. But yeah, it, maybe it's easy to forget that bass can do the same thing. Years ago, my son, my younger son, Alex, got a new girlfriend. The girlfriend's mother had a little retention pond behind her house. It was an acre or two. So he's looking at the pond. He said, I should try fishing here. So he did. He used a gurgler. You know what they are? Uh, yeah, I haven't used one, but I'm familiar with what it is. So he used a gurgler. He killed it. He <laughs> called his friend. He said, "We need to. you need to come fish this place with me. <laughs> in two weeks, they couldn't get a bite. Oh, really? They didn't they keep any fast. fish either. They let all the fish go. In two weeks, they could not catch another one. Huh. I, I definitely wouldn't have guessed that it would be that quick. I would assume it's, you know, over years. No, it happens fast. Um, and I give you another example with saltwater fish. After 9-11, the Banana River Lagoon was, there's a section of the Banana River Lagoon on the east side is the Canaveral Air Force Station. On the west side is the NASA property. So that had been open to the public for non-motorized vessels only. You could take a kayak or canoe up there. After 9-11, they closed it to all entry. After a year, they opened up the west side, but the east side stayed closed for four and a half years. One day, my friend Tom called me and said, uh, next Tuesday, they're opening up the no-motor zone east side to badged personnel. And he was a fireman out in the space center, so he was said badged personnel. He invited me to go. It was like, heck yeah! Yeah. <laughs> it was unbelievable. But everyone that worked out in the space center went fishing in, in two weeks. Those fish were the same as any of the fish anywhere else around the whole area that's not there, you know, in the rest of the lagoon. Yeah, it only took a couple of weeks. 
Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I know, I know, I didn't think of bass at all, but I wouldn't have even guessed that some of the more um, well-known, like wary fish, like trout, would would pick something up so fast. I, you know, it just seems like it would require, a, you know, being hooked over and over and over again for that to happen. And I'm sure the bass do get hooked a bunch, but um, I don't know. It, it, it's just surprising to me that it would be that fast. Sweat equity is a great thing, for sure. <laughs> if you can drive up to it. It's going to be hard to catch fish there. I don't care how many are in there. Well, that's that's the reason I really like getting out into the backcountry. I mean, that's my favorite place to fish, and that's kind of what I like to focus on when I can. And most of it's because I'd, I like putting in the work to get somewhere and then having easy fishing once I get there. Uh, exactly. I'm not as big a fan of, as drive, of driving up somewhere and having, uh, having to figure out the fish. I, w- I want the fish to play along, and I'll put in the, the miles of work to get there if I have to. <laughs> so you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> The, the backcountry lakes versus the tailwaters. Right. And, and that's that kind of transitions us into the Everglades specifically, because that was something I was really intrigued about when you sent me that um, post that you wanted to share on the website, is that, you know, a lot of times, at least when I think of backcountry, I'm thinking of mostly the West, and, and maybe that's because I'm out here, but also uh, there's just something romantic to think about the mountains and and hiking 10 miles in and being away from everybody. But uh, it might be easy to overlook the fact that the Southeast also has um, places that are just as, as remote as we have out here. Um, it just might not be the image that people think of when they think of classic backcountry fly fishing. Um, so, and I, I really have no knowledge of the Everglades apart from a very, you know, rudimentary overview. Uh, do you just want to give kind of an overview of, of what the Everglades are and um, kind of the, the style of fishing that goes on there? Well, to the best of my ability, I don't have any experience freshwater fishing in the Everglades. I know a lot of people, when they think of the Everglades, they think of the river of, gla- the river of grass, bass, sunfish, all that stuff. I haven't ever done that. <laughs> Excuse me. And all my fishing there has been saltwater. The longest trip I took there, we started up at the north end of Everglades National Park. We launched on a, at a river bridge on Highway 41 on the Turner River, paddled down the river, into Chokoloski Bay, which is brackish, and spent 13 days paddling 100 miles down Flamingo, following the Gulf Coast and uh, Florida Bay. Now, when we did that, it was like 35 years ago, uh, there were six of us. We only brought half as much food as we needed because I knew we would catch fish for the other half. If you did that today, you would starve to death. You can't do that now because you won't catch enough fish. The first trip I took there in 1980 that I mentioned before we started recording, we rode five or six days. We saw one other boat. Flat skiffs really hadn't been invented yet. So um, if you get on there now, though, there's flats boats every place. And everyone has a GPS now. It was intimidating back then because it was so easy to get lost. The maps weren't that accurate and everything looks the same. It's not like being in the mountains where it, that mountain is a reference, you know? Right, right. And the Everglades, it's very flat, and all the mangrove trees look exactly alike, so. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it would be super easy to get lost there, even even with a map. I mean, I'm sure things change day by day, and, um, you know, what's not water isn't necessarily land. I feel like, you know, here you've got water <laughs> and you've got land, and you can follow a stream, and there's a lake, and there's this and that. But I feel like in the, in the Everglades, it's got to be hard, because you might not be able to go somewhere, but... It, it could just be mangroves or, or uh, grasses or things like that that are blocking your way, not necessarily land that you can necessarily pick out on a map. Um, well, the tide it, could be out. It could be wet at high tide and dry at low tide. 
And so is it, I, I'm, I'm obviously probably asking really basic questions for someone who is familiar with the, for the, with the Everglades, but, um, how does it go from saltwater to brackish water to freshwater? Is it kind of separate, more separated where there's bass lakes and, and sunfish lakes and then, uh, directly connected to the saltwater? What's the, what's the layout like water-wise? Historically, the Everglades started up by Orlando and there was a sheet flow. There weren't any highways, you know, before Columbus got here, which is what I'm talking about a long time ago. Um, rain that fell anywhere in that shallow basin there ran down to Lake Okeechobee. When the lake got high, it would overflow its southern bank and all that water would sheet flow. And by sheet flow, I mean, it's like it's a river, maybe a foot deep, but 60 miles wide. All that water would slowly flow down into the Everglades and work its way out into the Gulf of Mexico and Florida Bay. Then Europeans got here. Canals. We can make this place better. Canals, um, roads, ditches, dikes. In the 1930s, I forget the year, there was a big hurricane that trashed Lake Okeechobee. It drowned about 3,500 people on the south side of the lake because they had a, a poorly built levee there. And the lake came over the levee and drowned everybody. So uh, they made the levee much, much bigger. And they dug big ditches, one to the east and one to the west, to drain the place. So the sheet flow isn't flowing so much anymore. And the type of flow has changed. There's not as much fresh water as there used to be. The brackish places became salt. Um, the fresh places became brackish. And you've, I've heard, since I moved here, I've heard talk about Everglades restoration. And all I've heard about it is talk. I, nothing's been done. It just keeps getting worse. So is what is the, the aspect that's getting worse is that it's getting overly developed? Florida is getting overly developed. I mean, the national park is a national park. But if you build houses all around the national park, that's going to change the water flow that's going into the park, which mm -hmm. is what's happened. Yeah, I think it's easy to think that if it's a national park, it's protected, but environmental factors don't care too much about boundaries that people have put on a map. My point, exactly. So how much of the Everglades is, is national park versus the entire area? Like, how, how much of it's uh, not in the national park? Is it a significant The national park is about 2 million acres, Okay, which is a big chunk of property. I mean, you definitely get lost in there, you know, and there's still fish in there. And believe me, there's plenty of bugs that will take your blood. Um, but all around it keeps getting built and built and built and built. Okay, so there's a there's a, a significant portion that's not protected. I would assume more of it's not protected than it is. Between Lake Okeechobee and where the Everglades National Park is, there are large farms that grow sugar cane, um, which adds to the water quality problems because they use a lot of fertilizer, you know. All that land is privately owned, and when it's not productive for growing sugarcane anymore, what do you suppose is going to happen to it? It will start popping houses up. I moved to Florida in 1984. I used to belong to the League of Environmental Educators in Florida, at which their conferences, I learned that 900 people a day moved to Florida. That was going on in 1984. It has not changed. So if you add 1,000 people a day over... 30 or 40 years, that's a big difference in population. It hasn't slowed down. People that live in New York, this time of year, they get fed up with snow and ice and plows and all that stuff. And they move down here. No one's put a gate up. 
Yeah, we have the same the same issue out here in Colorado, and I'm you know maybe not want to talk about it because I moved out here as well, um, probably before the major rush started. But <laughs> I always wonder, you know, what, what's it like to live in a state where people are leaving? Because it seems like most of the places out west, and I'm, I'm sure where you are, and uh, some of the other states, it's just a mad a mad rush of people into it. And I always wonder what it's like to be in one of the states that is is losing people instead of gaining them. Because out here, it's the same way. And for us, the problems are things like traffic and people getting out on the trails when when it's sensitive sensitive times for like elk populations and things like that. Um, so that's what we're dealing with versus your your overdevelopment in the Everglades, but the, the same overall issue of just too many people too quickly in too small of a space that they can't handle that that influx. Has it affected your water quality? Um, I'm not sure about the water quality itself. The, I hear about it more often in terms of wildlife populations being affected. Um, I, obviously, you have a lot more water in your state than we do. And I'm sure like, you know, down here in Denver, we might deal with water quality issues, but up in the mountains, I feel like it's generally uh, like water quality isn't what comes to mind when it comes to overpopulation of people. But you hear a lot about populations of elk not being able to make it because, um, you know, sensitive calving areas are being infiltrated by hunters and anglers and skiers and hikers and just more people getting out into places they didn't historically get out into. The problem here in Florida, besides the water quality issues, is habitat loss. And I know that's not those two things are not limited to Florida. Those happen every place. For sure. Well, maybe, so, maybe on a more positive note. Maybe, yeah, let's maybe, talk about fishing. Yeah. <laughs> now that we got that out of the way. Um, why don't we go into just uh, some of the species you have down there? And um, I know you like you like kayaking for them. So I'd also love to hear about some of the techniques used to uh, to fish the Everglades and, and whether you can wade it or if it's all, all boat access and, and what you're targeting. When my kids were little, I would take them down there. And kids want to bite, right? So we mentioned that earlier. I would bring a cast net. I would bring spin rods. We would write down species of fish we caught, every new species. We would come home after three days because they were little, and we would have 17 or 20 species. Wow. Caught in the net. Didn't matter how we catch them. We'd write down everything. So there's lots of different kinds of things there. Fly fishermen, having said that, fly fishermen want tarpon. They want snook. Those are probably the two biggest things. They're more likely to catch spotted sea trout or redfish. But on a good day, you get all four of those with a fly. The tarpon probably wouldn't be 100 pounders. But um, tarpon are my favorite fish. They could be 10 inches. It doesn't make a difference. Just use smaller rod. You know? There's lots of other things. There are ladyfish. There are jack cravel. There are um, what I used to call jewfish. They now call them goliath grouper. You catch those with flies. There's weird stuff you get. That you pull it in and say, what is this? Lizard fish come to mind. Sea robins come to mind. Um, there are black drum there. You catch those on flies occasionally. So yeah, you catch stuff. You have no idea what it is. Now that sounds super fun because here, you know, we, we do have tons of species in Colorado, but um, not being connected to a greater system, you know, with, with the Everglades being connected to saltwater, I'm sure that, you know, lots of things make it in there. And, and here we're a little bit more, uh, isolated in that you go to a lake and there whatever's in there is in there you know there's not <laughs> there's not things coming and going and uh there's generally a limited number of of species a handful maybe in some of the bigger lakes but um that would be very exciting to go to go there and you know not necessarily know what you're going to catch and if you do catch something you might not even know what it is and i, I didn't even mention the, there are quite a few exotic species there now mayan cichlids 
you catch those in the brackish areas. They look, the, the closest thing I can relate them to, if you've never seen one before, is a sunfish, but they're much more brilliantly colored. Um, they have a big eye spot on their tail like a redfish does. You could catch largemouth bass in the brackish areas. Oh, okay. I didn't know they could tolerate any amount of salt. Um, I'm not sure how much they can tolerate, but I know they catch them in tidal areas all up the East Coast. So. Okay. And so why are the why are the fly fishermen targeting those handful of species you mentioned? I mean, I do hear about those a lot in regards to fly fishing saltwater, but is it just that they're kind of the biggest bang for your buck? They, they're the largest species and put up a good fight, or is there any other reason that those are the primary ones that are targeted by, by fly anglers? Um, I'm going to turn that question around. Okay. <laughs> European carp or cutthroat trout, what are you going for? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, a, I just wasn't sure what else you had there. So it, it's, I was wondering what, what set those species apart. There is an angling, and I don't know why this is true, but I know that it is true. And it, as much as I really don't like it, um, I fall into the same trap. There is a hierarchy of desirability amongst fishes. Fishermen want some fish more than other fish. And if you ask them why, to use the cutthroat trout and the carp I question, why would you rather catch a trout than a carp? Carp get way bigger. In many places, they're more difficult to get a bite. But, you know, they're more challenging. They're certainly not as pretty as a trout. And I, I don't know why that is, but I would rather catch a tarpon than any other kind of fish. Now, I do have to, to clarify that if I right now could only catch a carp or a cutthroat, I would choose the carp because I haven't landed a carp before, but I have caught hundreds of cutthroats. But if I could only choose which one would be here in Colorado, I would choose the cutthroat. Um, they're not necessarily the same, the same answer to the question. But I can, I can see, definitely see your point in what you're getting at here with, with why you'd want to catch a tarpon. No, that having been said, I want to get a bite. And if there's no tarpon, there are fish for other things. Fair enough. <laughs> I might plan my trip so that it passes a place where I strongly suspect that I'll run into some tarpon. But... But you're not going to turn down anything that's willing to take your fly. Um, are you? Do you know the fish called Jack Crevel? I have. Def- I've heard of it. Um, I've never seen one or or fished for them. People talk about trash fish. Like I hate that term. But a Jack Crevel is often referred to in Florida as a trash fish. They are so awesome. I mean, I have written odes about Jack Crevel. They're they're aggressive. They'll take any kind of an artificial. They, they fight unbelievably hard. The only thing about their fight that could be improved is they could jump out of the water, which they never, ever do for any reason. They're, they look a lot like a permit, and they're related in taxonomy. They're not very distant from a permit. The people, fly fishers particularly, exalt the permit. You know, you say permit, you genuflect. And uh, Jack Revelle are trash fish. I don't get it. That's really interesting that you mentioned that because I feel like everything you just said is exactly the situation we have out here with mountain whitefish, which, you know, you said that they're, your, your Jack Val are related to permit. They look kind of like a permit, but they're considered trash despite the fact that permit are, you know, the creme de la creme of, of fly fishing saltwater. And here, um, everyone extols the virtues of trout. Um, and we have the mountain whitefish, which is native, so it's not it's not in the same realm as a, a, something like a carp, which could be considered a trash fish. But you know, with the reasoning being they're not really supposed to be here, um, 
that they're kind of ugly compared to some of the other fish. But mountain whitefish are native. Um, they are also related to trout. And I love them because they put up a way better fight than trout. I would rather catch a mountain whitefish any day than a trout. Um, and people hate them. And I have no idea why. It's just the attitude. I, I mean, that must be it. I, it. Maybe it's because they're kind of a grayish grayish tan color instead of instead of brightly colored i don't know um how your fish stack up in terms of of color but i agree that i've never really understood that trash fish mentality i'll i'll take whatever will bite my line but especially if it's something that's a native fish all all that having been said i really dislike catfish (laughs) why is that i've been they have spines so if if you catch them and you handle them you might get stuck and i've been stuck Three times, the first time I had to go to the hospital to get it out. They're, it's painful, you know. Now, I know um, some of the smaller catfish that I'm familiar with, I don't know if they're true catfish or if they're just related, but like mad toms are actually venomous in their spines. Are, are catfish as well, or are catfish just a, a painful stab, kind of like if you handle a, a bluegill or a bass and you grab the dorsal fin wrong, you might get a jab in the hand? Catfish spines are barbed like beast things or porcupine quills. Oh, okay. So they're hard to get out. A little bit worse. And they have all that slime, which is full of bacteria. It's a puncture wound, so it gets infected easily. I know I got stuck the second time in the same place I got stuck the first time. But I was in a boat with four other people. And uh, I cut the spine off the catfish, and I gave the guy, my pl- one of the other guys in the boat, my pliers. And I said, just, just pull it out. I'm going to look the other way. So we pulled it out. And then have you had a, tooth pa- a toothache ever? Uh, I did. Well, I don't know if it was a true toothache. I got a uh, a reverse. What's it called? Um, when you're when you're diving and you get a like a blocked nasal passage, and it it happened above my tooth. So it, it definitely felt like a toothache, even if it wasn't a true toothache. But it it brought me to tears. This thing went all the way up to my shoulder, from my bird finger in my right hand. So now, is yeah, there I a couldn't... spine in the dorsal fin, or is it uh, the dorsal? There's a dorsal spine and two pectoral spines. Okay. Are the catfish in this brackish water, or is this a, a freshwater only issue? Um, catfish have more species than any other fish family. They're found in lots of different types of environments. In Florida, there are two species in salt water. There's the hardhead cat, which is the one I'm talking about specifically. There's a gaff top sail cat, which we usually call sail cats, that are, are a little more sporting although even slimier. So we got two in salt water that you can catch them any place in the ocean, in the Gulf. And you will occasionally catch them on flies. Yeah, I've seen, uh, I think I've seen one or two catfish caught on flies. I've, ne- I've never caught one on a fly, but um, I've seen it happen. And it, it seems fairly unlikely can, compared to how people usually target them with the, the smelly, smelly baits on a hook on the bottom. Uh, I'm not really sure what gets them to take a fly, but I guess it's just anything can happen if you do it long enough. Um, channel cats are pretty aggressive. They they will take flies sometimes. I've caught several in the St. John's River. Now going back to um, Everglades fishing, I know you uh, mentioned when you sent over that post and the pictures you sent that you are mostly in a kayak. Is that pretty standard? Um, are boats in general standard? Is there any way to fish the Everglades without some sort of watercraft? No, you at least need a watercraft to get to a place you can wade. Okay. The Everglades, for an angler, has two ends that are 100 miles apart. The north end is at Everglades City, Chukalusky. Um, there is a National Park Service visitor center there. 
the, right behind the visitor center is a boat ramp for paddled vessels only. Down the road, five miles or so, there's a boat ramp for motorized vessels. And the Everglades used heavily by motorboats. So at the south end, access is, you have to go through Miami to the end of the Florida Turnpike. There's a city there called Everglades City. And from Everglades City to Flamingo, which is where the boat ramp is, it takes you about an hour's drive. And there, there's a campground. There's a visitor center. Um, we used to have a motel there. It got flooded out a couple of times in hurricanes. So now they've, they've put some new kind of structures in there that they rent out to people that don't want a tent. But if you were interested in camping, you could do it there, which you cannot do up at the other end. Oh, interesting. So so there is land out there that you can just throw up a tent on and, and boat to it, I assume? Yes. So like I mentioned earlier, we took a 13-day trip in canoes. That trip was in canoes. It's hard to take a 13-day trip in kayaks. You don't have enough carrying capacity. And you have to carry all your water. It's heavy and takes a lot of room. They have. There are beaches. You can camp on the beach. In the backcountry... where it's all mangroves and water. There are no beaches there. So they have built structures they call chickies. The Seminole Indians used to build chickies when they were on the run from the U.S. Army during the Seminole Wars. They they made them out of wooden branches and thatched it with palm leaves, you know. These structures in the Everglades are pressure-treated wood stunk into the bottom with a wood-frame roof. And they're, they're wooden platforms on the water. for campers so do you need a tent to stay in one or is it pretty much fully enclosed and you just do you you run it out is it first come first serve strictly speaking you don't need a tent the biting insects you need a tent i mean you'll get eaten alive without one they don't have sides these things just have a roof and they're open so i have camped on them and didn't put the fly in my tent because well i got this roof over me but when the rain comes in sideways that roof doesn't help you at all you have to get a permit to camp in the Everglades from the National Park Service, which is 20 bucks, And then it's a, $2 a night per person. I forget the fee. There is a fee every night. When I first started going there, they were first come and first serve. Now you have to make a reservation and you have to make it in person. So you go to the, when you're planning your trip, you plan alternate routes so that if you can't get to the spot you want to stay at, because someone's already there, you got another idea you can take. It saves a huge amount of time. You mentioned that uh, you can you can't wade there unless you use a boat to get there. Is it are are you ref- referencing the fact that you can boat into land and then wade in there, or does it just get shallow enough that you can basically hop out of your boat and walk around? Uh, I know you mentioned that it's it's relatively shallow through a lot of it. Is it is how's how's the wading situation once you boat into that? If you don't mind wading through hip deep mud. You can wade in a lot of those places. (laughs) But I find wading in hip deep mud very, very difficult. And if you get stuck on an incoming tide, it could get ugly. So the boat, you pretty much need to fish from a boat if you're fishing around Flamingo because there's no wadeable places there. The bottom's all soft. When you get up to the other end, though, at Chukalusky, there's lots of oysters. There are the beaches and those types of places you can wade. If you're paddling... Your paddle tells you, you know, you stick it in the bottom and see how hard it is. If a big plough of mud comes up, it's not the place. 
And if you're in a skiff, you got to push poles. You can always tell how, how hard the bottom is. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I I remember um, when you shared that post, I, th- I think it it was in that that you mentioned don't worry about the reptiles. Is is that is that a concern for people? You know, are there are there a lot of alligators around? Is that anything to keep in mind when you're fishing, or is that a non-issue? There are alligators. There are American crocodiles. Uh, now there's pythons. Oh yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, I haven't seen one myself, but I have, a, I have a friend who's seen two. You know, Katie, it's like out west. Are you going to worry about the grizzly bears? You know they're there. The most dangerous thing any of us do and we all do it without thinking twice about it, is we get in a car and we drive. I knew that's what you were going to come up with. <laughs> it's by far the most risky thing we do. We don't ever think twice about it. But an alligator might bite you. Oh, oh my God, I'm not doing that. Right. I guess I was just thinking in the same line. We don't have grizzly bears here, but it was a concern when we were up in Montana. But it it was something that was on our mind, but it didn't stop us from doing what we wanted to do. Um, I don't know if maybe the alligators would fall into that same category of, I'm still going to go fishing. I'm not going to let it affect my day, but it's, is it, is it still on your mind when you're out there or is it, is it completely overblown by whatever alligator media out there is, is pushing the fact that these things are, are man eaters just out to get anyone they see. Most of the time when alligators, let's say attack people or cause I can't find the other word I want. It's, there's a couple different situations. This typically happens. The alligator is living in a residential area because there's water all over Florida. I mean, they dug canals to make waterfront property, you know. People start feeding them. So if an alligator associates people with food and the people don't come up with the food, they might become food. So pretty much the same as a problem bear here. Exactly. Or people are out, they've, they've used chemicals to alter reality and they're out in the, at night and say, let's go swimming. That is a really stupid thing to do because that's when alligators feed is at night. You don't go out in a lake and splash around because you had a few too many beers and maybe smoked a couple of doobies, you know? It's still a bad idea. So basically, operate with common sense and there's nothing really to worry about. I've been fishing here since 1984. I've never had a problem. The other thing I get from a lot of time from people out west too, you ever use belly boats here? Hell no. <laughs> That's not a good idea either for obvious reasons. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking, okay, well, if, you know, if boats are necessary, I'm, I'm used to using a belly boat. Maybe that would be good. So I'm glad I didn't ask that and, and make a fool of myself. <laughs> because if you're in salt water, it's not just gators. Now you got to worry about sharks. Too. Oh, yeah. I mean, is that, do you encounter those a lot? Oh, my God. If you don't see sharks, you're not going to see anything else. It all works together. You when you're out there and you've asked me about, well, what are you looking for kind of thing? You want to see stuff. You want to see lots of mullet. You want to see lots of little minnows. You want to see sharks. You want to see birds diving. You want to see life because believe me, that's where the fish are. If you go out in a place that looks awesome, but it's dead, the chance of catching any fish there isn't very good. Yeah, I feel like that's pretty universal. I feel like life attracts life. And if, exactly. if one thing doesn't want to be there, likely nothing else wants to be there either. Everyone's looking for groceries. Now, what kind of gear are you using, um, apart from the boat, uh, in terms of rod weights, uh, line types, things like that? I know you said for the, the bass in freshwater, you're using mostly floating lines, things like that, and flo- maybe floating flies too, um, just because of the submerged logs and things, but uh, when you're targeting some of these other species like tarpon and uh, redfish and snook and things like that, wh- what kind of gear are you using? The, the last trip I took down there was 
in November. I went down with my buddy, Mike, who brought his dog. It's a service dog because the park doesn't allow pets out there, but this is a service dog. So uh, we went kayaking to the Gulf. It was not a, an epic. We're going to do 80 miles trip. We went out to an island that was five miles out. We camped there. We stayed there four or five nights. We went, came back. I brought a spin rod, which I didn't use very much, and I brought a six-weight. Six-weight had a floating line on it. I'm not a fan of sinking lines, and I'm fishing in shallow water, so I don't really need one. Now, that having been said, I would tell most people to bring an eight-weight because I know how to cast, and I know how to fight fish, and I've done all this stuff. The chance of hooking a big fish that the six-weight couldn't handle is real. So, you know, if I hooked a big fish, I'd be undergone. But most of the fish you can handle with a six-weight. And how about the flies? I know, you know, a lot of the time the the rod is, you know, for matching the fish, but a lot of the other times it's it's basically just matching the fly that you're trying to cast. What kind of flies are you using for these fish? You need flies that imitate fish. You need flies that imitate shrimp. You need a few that imitate crabs. You need some attractor style flies that don't imitate anything. Uh, the gurgler I mentioned earlier would fall in that category. A spoon fly. I don't often use spoon flies because I don't make them. I hate working with epoxy, but they're not a bad thing to have. Um, most of my flies are like number four. A big one would be number two. I have, I always carry some big ones in case I run into some big tarpon or I get a, this idea that I'm going to throw a big fly for snook, but I want it to be synthetic so that it sheds water so I can throw it with a small rod. Now, are you mostly sight fishing for these fish? I sight fish whenever I can. At high tide, it's very hard to do, especially from a kayak because you're so low to the water. Sometimes at high tide, I just go take a nap. So my kayak, I have an ocean kayak drifter, which they haven't made them in quite a while. I bought it in 2003. I can stand up in it. So if it's not windy and there's not a strong current, I can stand up and look for fish in that. Get a little better view from up there, I'm sure. Yeah. If there's a lot of fish around, I don't need to do that. If the water's shallow, because I can see them. Kayaks are very stealthy. I catch fish in the kayak with the leader in the tip of the rod. I, mean, I just got two yesterday, like the fish was right next to me, but it didn't know I was there. So, Yeah, I grew up fishing, uh, obviously not uh, saltwater fish like you you are, but I, I grew up fishing in a kayak for smallmouth bass. And I always appreciated that too, that as long as you set the paddle down and don't don't risk uh, like banging that up against the, the boat itself, you can paddle right over things and they do not care that you're there. My kayak's bright yellow. I know everyone wants a camo kayak because they're cool. I ran a skiff for as a fishing guide for a long time. I hated camo kayaks. Early in the morning when the light's bad, you can't see them. <laughs> and I don't want to get run over by a guy in a motorboat. I got a bright yellow kayak. Look at me. I'm right here. So uh, the fishermen are worried that the fish are going to see them. But I'm telling you right now, they don't care. I catch. It happens all the time. The leader, the end of the leader is in the tip of the rod. The fish is like 12, 14 feet away. They eat the flight without any hesitation. Well, and you can't fish anyway if you get run over by a boat. So <laughs> I think uh, I think it might be worth weighing that, weighing the pros and cons there and just saying, I don't, I don't care if the fish see this, even if they do care. Well, the types of places I like to fish, motorboats aren't usually an issue anyway, but it's the sweat equity again. There are ponds down at, out of Flamingo that, where they don't allow motorboats. So when I fish there, I always go back in those ponds. Now the fish moving in and out of them. So in the ponds, they're not little ponds, they're quite large. So if you go in there, you can spend a the whole day there and not see anything. 
but that's the risk you take when you go fishing anywhere around here. Birds have wings and they go from place to place. Fish have fins and they go from place to place. So if you're starting cold, like when I used to go to the Everglades, um, it would take me sometimes two, three days to figure out what was going on before you really started to do well. So if you go for two days, you might not have time to figure it out, you know? Yeah, so that, that actually brings me to my next question, which is, uh, and this might be kind of a, a silly question for anyone who has experience on saltwater, and forgive me, I'm coming from uh, an experience of only only freshwater fishing, but, you know, here we're matching the hatch, and you're you're trying to figure out at least what's available in the water and, and maybe what's coming off at that particular moment, but when you're fishing for these species and you're throwing crabs and shrimp and fish imitations, uh, are, is it kind of a trial and error approach? How are you figuring out what it is that you should be throwing that day uh, for whatever it is that you're trying to, to catch? You know, I wish I could give you a very scientific, well-thought-out answer. On my rod right now, my six-weight, I have a brown slider. It's a little shrimp imitation. It's tied to the number four hook. That fly has been on there for probably two months now. Not the same one because they wore out. I broke one off yesterday. Leadering the fish, I don't carry a net. I just grab them with my hand. So I got to grab the leader and pull them in. And when I did that, it broke at the knot, you know. You are used to trout in particular being very fussy about what they will and will not eat. Our fish tend to eat anything that's easy. Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I that's kind of how I remember bass fishing at times being. Is they, you put it in they front of their sometimes, face. They will sometimes become selective. But most of the time, if you throw it in front of them and make it easy for them to take it, they will. It's so like people ask me, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, so you're using imitations of things that they, they know they like to eat, but it's not necessarily choosing the exact pattern that you need for that exact moment on that exact day. It's, it's giving them something they know they like and making it available to them and making it a, an easy choice for them to, to want to eat it versus passing it up. Yeah, and there's a lot of gut feeling that goes on too. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. How much current is there? How high is the water? How murky is it? Some kind of calculus goes on in my head <laughs> without any conscious effort going on. And I open my fly box and pick the magic one. And sometimes I'm actually right, you know? And if not, I throw it for 30 minutes and change. You know, that's the thing across the board, too. Uh, you know, regardless of how much people insist that you need to match the hatch for trout, at the end of the day, sometimes you just open it up and you see a, a fly that you just want to fish. And it doesn't, it doesn't really matter whether it's what's hatching or not. And, you know, sometimes that works just as well as whatever would be the, you know, technically correct fly to choose. Sometimes something just feels right. Or sometimes you have a favorite fly just for no reason in particular, just feels like the one. And those are, those are my favorite days, though, is when you've... I don't know, you've just had some sort of intuition and it works out. Fishing here, at least, I think that colors and patterns and all that stuff, way more important to the fishermen than the fish. I'm going to relate it to spin fishing with my friend Mike, because Mike very rarely fly fishes. Mike's favorite lure is called the voodoo shrimp. Um, it's about three, three and a half inches long. It's got a single hook made out of plastic. If it didn't have a hook in it, you'd think you could bread bread it up and fry it and eat it yourself, you know. <laughs> it's very realistic looking. I like when I'm spin fishing a little three-inch plastic shad. Again, fish with a single hook. I hate lures with gang hooks because why would you use them? One is plenty, you know. Um, Mike and I fish next to each other, and we take a trip every year of at least a week 
when we've been doing that since 2013. So you start to see patterns, you know. Um, there are days Mike outfishes me. There are days I outfish him. And there are days where it doesn't make a difference. And in the end, it all comes out in the wash. So, so when I say well, it doesn't really matter, just tie on something that you have faith in and throw it out there. Right. Pick something that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. The fish will let you know. Yeah, I mean the biggest the biggest thing that can or the worst thing that can happen is that the fish don't take it and you just change flies. It's not like you have to marry a fly and use it for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, they have a fishing tournament here called the, the two fly, which I haven't. I mean, I'm not a tournament fisherman. I don't get it. But um, the two fly at the start of the tournament, you get an envelope. You don't get to choose the flies. You get an envelope, and in the envelope are two flies. How that's interesting! You get to I- use that day. Yeah, I feel like I've heard of the one. I feel like I've heard of a, like a one fly tournament, but I think you get to choose your fly. Now I haven't heard of this one where they basically assign you flies. Yeah, they just give you an envelope. I don't think. I think it's completely random. The envelopes aren't marked in any way. I don't believe they just hand you one. <laughs> and that's what you get. Well, so, uh, and, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I digress. Oh no, the the last topic I wanted to ask you about, um, and this is another thing I know you mentioned in the post you sent over to me, but uh, is how to if someone wants to come to Florida and and pull this off, is there a a quick summary of how to kind of organize a trip to the Everglades, um, places to rent things, or, and what you might need to to do a trip there yourself? This would be a great time to plug my book, Fishing the Everglades. But it's oh yeah, been please out of do. Print, print <laughs> it's not a print for a long time. That was the first book I ever wrote. It was called Fishing the Everglades, a guide for the small boater. It was about taking trips in the Everglades and going fishing. Um, it was not limited to fly fishing. It was fishing. It even had bait selection. Um, there are outfitters. Obviously, if you were coming from Colorado, unless you had a canoe and all the paddle stuff, a canoe or a kayak, whatever type of vessel you preferred, you have to obtain that somehow. You go to an outfitter. They have all the stuff. They give you everything you need, but your fish and tackle and off you go. You have to go to the National Park Service camp, uh, website. There's a trip planner on there to show you where all the campsites are, how, what the distances between them are. You know, there are days when 10 miles goes easy and there are days when 10 miles is an all day struggle. When you're making your plan, you need to keep that in mind. If you're going against the wind and the tide, 10 miles is a really long way. If you're young, and healthy and strong, then you could be quite ambitious in your plan. If you are uh, hesitant about your skills and abilities to pull something like this off, take a small loop trip. Out of Chukaluski, the nearest campsite is four or five miles away. And there are several at approximately that distance. You can make a lovely loop trip there, take a week, you know, camp on this key, camp on this key, camp on this key, go back, drive home. It's kind of a build your own adventure. It sounds like you can be as ambitious or as reserved as you want and, and kind of cater it to your abilities and, and what you're looking for. Exactly. People go down here and take trips. They don't even bring fishing tackle. That's how crazy they are. <laughs> That's how I feel about people who hike 15 miles into lakes here. And I'm like, you know, there's probably fish in there who've never, never seen a fly before, right? <laughs> The first trip I took in the Everglades, we, it took us three or four days to get to this chicky. And at the time, it was first come, first serve. They didn't have a reservation system back then. There wasn't enough use to justify it, you know? Um, so we got there. It's like, this is awesome. We got this place all to ourselves. 
So a couple hours later, we hear this annoying little internal combustion noise, you know. It was another couple in a little blow up thing like a Zodiac with a little outboard on it. They had flown down in their own airplane from Michigan, rented a car, drove to Flamingo, put their little Zodiac in the water, mowed it out as it turned out right to where we were. And suddenly <laughs> it was a crowd on this chicky because it was a single platform. And we didn't know these people from all in the ground, right? Oh, so they're coming to the same chicky, not just in the same area, but they're planning to stay there. They're staying on the same chicky. Then I'm not done. Right at dusk, two guys come in a canoe. And there is no room for them at all. So they get up on the roof of the chicky, which I might add is a pretty good slope with no tent. And that's where they spent the night. And the bugs were really bad that night. So it must have been torture up there. But those two guys were paddling from Chukaluski to Flamingo, which is 100 miles, in six days, which meant at first light, they got up, wolfed down some breakfast, packed their stuff up, jumped in the boat, paddled all day till it, got, it was getting dark, and stopped and ate supper and slept in the bugs and repeat the next day. That's not my idea of fun. And you go home and say, yeah, I took a canoe trip in the Everglades. We hated it. <laughs> What's the point, you know? Well, that's something I didn't even think about is the fact that, you know, at least out here, I know I keep comparing this to where I am, but that's that's the reference I have, is that if you plan to camp somewhere and you show up and someone's camping there, you just walk until you find a new camp spot. But out there, if you plan to camp in one of those chickies and you show up and someone's there, it's not like you can just set up camp 50 feet away in the in the middle of the water and sleep there. Like, you kind of have to, you know, if the sun's going down, you got to kind of camp there. Um, so you're kind of putting all your eggs in one basket. I, I guess I don't know how spread out they are, but I assume that they're not all stacked on top of one another and that if you show up to one, it, it might be the only one in that area. That's why there's a re reservation system, though. Ah, okay. And something, like, now a lot of them are doubles, too. Back in 1980, there weren't any doubles. They were all single ones. But now they have double ones. And you can fit, and the, the platforms themselves are larger. So you might, if you're friends, you might be able to fit six people on one platform and six people on the other platform. And that's a fairly large group, you know. The, the largest, I prefer going down there without only one other person. It just makes everything easier. Or I take a lot of solo trips. Yeah, I feel like in general, the fewer people, the easier every every trip is. <laughs> it's just, it takes so long to get going, and there's so much inertia involved in whatever you're doing. Once you get started, it's harder to stop. You have to discuss everything at length. You can't just make a decision and do it, you know? Yeah, I take very few trips with more than maybe three people, three or four people, because that's that's about the maximum number I want to debate with about what we should be doing at any given moment. <laughs> Are you able to fish by yourself or do you have to concern yourself with personal safety? Uh, no, I fish by myself quite a bit. Um, I probably do two or three solo trips, uh, like like backpacking trips every year. And I do a lot of just day fishing by myself. You carry uh, a gun? No, not usually. You just don't run into dirt bags, huh? <laughs> I just try to get far enough away from people that it's not a big deal. <laughs> You're lucky. Yeah, it's it has been a concern at times, but for the most part, pretty a pretty non-issue for me. I don't know if I were a woman. I don't know if I'd do that anywhere in Florida, but I'm not a woman, so. 
Well, uh, do you want to just finish up by maybe uh, plugging some of your books? I know you mentioned a couple books that you had written, and uh, you had one that was more recent out, if you wanted to just share what those are and, and what they're about. Um, my most recent book that your listeners might be interested in is called Fishing Florida by Paddle. It's published by the History Press. So there's some history in there because that was one of their stipulations. And history is a good thing. When you go to a place, it's nice to know that, you know, there were bird plume hunters shooting birds there that you're so excited to see a hundred years ago because they made a ton of money selling the feathers. It's not limited to the Everglades. It covers the whole state of Florida, except for the Keys, because the publisher already had a book about the Keys, paddling in the Keys. So they didn't need my input on that. So when I researched that book, I fished from Pensacola to Jacksonville to Everglades National Park, both coasts. Um, it's not limited to fly fishing. It also has spin fishing, although I left the bait home. Um, it's strictly artificials. And my, I already said, you know, I hate artificials with gang hooks, only single hook artificials. Um, tells you the fish we got here. It tells you that I like sweat equity. In Florida, there's all kinds of places you can fish. You can fish in seawalls, you can fish under bridges, you can fish in uh, spillways, all those, all those places are valid places to fish. I don't like to fish in those kind of places, so they're not in my book. Get in the boat, paddle for 10 miles, and that's where you start fishing. Because it's, it's like exactly what you said with hiking. The farther you get away from the road, the better the fishing gets. I thought it was a good book. I've had nothing but good things said about it. It's, you can get it on Amazon. Um, if you like it, please put a review on there. There's only one on there. It's positive, but more is better. This is America. <laughs> Sounds good. I, I hope people will check it out. And uh, maybe I'll get a copy and um, maybe that'll inspire me to, to come down and, and check it out. Because like I said, the Everglades are on my list, but uh, haven't made it down there yet. And, and maybe having a little bit more knowledge about where I'm going will, will inspire me to finally buy the ticket and, and make it down there. If you, you're going to have to do two things here. You're going to have to send me a snail mail address and you're going to have to put the chemistry book down. I will mail you one. Oh, well, don't worry. Uh, I, it won't be hard for me to put the chemistry book down. It's, <laughs> it's going to be an online textbook anyway, so I won't even have anything to put down, but uh, it'll give me a good excuse to not, not think about chemistry for a couple, a couple of minutes at a time at least. All right, John, well, um, do you just want to, I don't know if you have a, a website or social media that you want to plug, but um, now, now is a great time to do that. If you have anywhere else you want to send people, uh, otherwise we can, we can wrap it up. On Instagram, I'm at Spotted Tail Flyfish. I post pretty much every day. Um, my old guiding website, which is still up, but not pushing fishing trips, is SpottedTail.com. I used to, uh, in the interest of search engine optimization, I would publish informational articles about fishing in Florida to attract traffic to my website. And I left all that stuff up there because it's a, it's a, uh, a civic resource, you know, if, if you will. So you can go to Spotted Tail and see free fishing, Florida fishing information. And there's all kinds of articles there that are all free. Just read them and dream if you're up to your button <laughs> snow right now. And I also have a, another website called johncomiskey.com, which was very clever. And it has all my writing stuff and photography stuff and a mishmash of stuff. And that's all I'm trying to plug. 
I don't really have anything to sell. No worries. Well, this has been uh, super fun. This is the first, uh, I mean, I know you're not full on offshore fishing, but this has been the first um, saltwater related podcast I've done. So um, thanks so much for for coming on and and sharing your knowledge because I'm pretty excited to try to get to Florida at some point now to give that a try. Thanks for taking the time and uh, it was fun sharing this with all you people. Sure, anytime. Don't forget to send me your email, not your email, your snail mail address. <laughs> Will do. All right. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Um, remember to head over to the website fishuntamed.com for all episodes, show notes, blog posts, everything else. Uh, if you've got a minute or two, leave a rating or review on iTunes. And if you're looking for me on social media, you can find me at fishuntamed on Instagram or under my name, Katie Burger on Go Wild. And that's all for this week, but I'll be back here in two weeks, and I'll see you guys then. Bye, everybody.